Silverwood. Yeah, yeah. We got to take a family vacation. Oh yeah, yeah. So there'll be there'll be no gathering here next week, um, but throw it on your calendar. Uh, September tenth. Uh, we're just gonna have kind of a a, a small. Uh, communion service and we're going to go through the 2022-2023 kind of strategy overlay of, of what we're going to be doing, where the church is going, spend some time uh, praying for that. And then September 24th is our one year birthday as a church. So we're going to, uh, it's been a year already, we're going to get some bouncy houses out there, we're going to get some, uh, uh, I think I'm going to try and get Brank, not Branks, what's the other place, the barbecue place? That's the one, man. Whichever one, man. Barbecue. And we'll try. Well, one of them we'll get. We should. We'll, we'll get it catered, and we'll just spend some time having dinner. Let the kids play. So we'll invite people. I'm gonna invite Abundant Life. Uh, Pastor Brad, I think, is gonna come out, and we'll we'll get some people out there just to, uh, you know, just celebrate what God's done in a, in a short year of a tiny church plant, and look towards the future, and and go from there. So, anyway, so to do some review. Like I said before, my notes are whatever they are, um, but we'll go through it anyway. So, you know, Revelations, uh, basically four through five transitions out of the letters, the epistles to the churches, Revelation four through five, there's a scene in heaven, John sees uh, Jesus, he sees Jesus as the slain lamb, uh, take a scroll out of the hand of the father and he begins to break those seals open and as he breaks the seals open from the scrolls there's the first round of judgments that hit the earth and uh, it affects a quarter of the people on the earth and we believe that at that point uh, the church has been raptured out so we believe it we kind of uh, just so you know bro we, we kind of teach a, a pre-tribulation like you don't have to believe that it hasn't happened yet, but that's just kind of where where I personally lean. Um, it's not a you know it's not like a dogmatic fight. Just other people believe other things, but that's what what we I do the kind of the the view that I do have. Um, then we in chapter seven, one hundred forty four thousand uh, Jewish people, twelve thousand from each of the tribes of Israel are sealed for an evangelistic mission on the earth. And then in Revelations 8 and 9, I don't think you guys were here for that. It's basically death, pain, suffering, horrible death, then even more pain. And Yeah, there was. And then more pain and more suffering. And we all just kind of like went through that chapter and we're like, hey, you know. But it's, it's the trumpet judgments. And that brings us to the midway point in the tribulation. Uh, in Revelations chapter 10, we spent most of the time last time we were together just talking about Bible study strategies, really. Um, and in, in Revelations 10, John has an interactive vision where he sees an angel and he's given that little scroll and that little book to eat and just kind of his interaction there. Um, but at the midway point in the tribulation, the Antichrist has broken the treaty with Israel at that point and invaded the temple and begin intense persecution of the Jewish people. At this point, he will call himself God, which we know is not true. Um, the tribulation is one of the darkest and most devastating time periods in human history. I think it is, uh, but God is still at work in the earth. He sealed the 144,000. We see the mighty angel in chapter 10. We're going to learn a little bit about the two witnesses in chapter 11. And then there's some proclamations and prophecies from the elders in the throne room that usher in some uh, pretty neat things 
and we're going to get into that in a minute. But just a couple Bible study uh, best practices. Uh, exegesis is basically when you study scripture and you pull truth out of it. So you're looking at scripture, you're looking at what it says, and you pull the truth from what is written in the page. Okay, Eisegesis is putting truth to what is written. That's not a bad practice, but you need to make sure that you understand scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. Make sure that you have wisdom, discernment, because if you do that incorrectly, you can fall into error. Hence, we get, you know, different cults and different, all that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, that's where men, many people fall into poor study habits and best practices, of course, scripture interprets scripture, you know, so if you can't just open up the Bible to a scripture and then read the scripture and then pull doctrine out of it, can't do that. You got to make sure that it's aligned. And I think that's one thing studying the book of revelation. I've learned most is how intertwined scripture is with itself. With the book, I mean, Revelation, you read that, you read Daniel, Zechariah, all these things, Genesis, it just, it just ties everything together and makes it proven. And then, of course, research Hebrew, Aramaic. I use the Blue Letter Bible. It's online, it's free, and that really helps me do some studies. And then, uh, you know, find trusted resources, commentaries. Warner Wearsby, best commentaries ever written, I think. Go buy them, go rent them, something, find them at the library, whatever. Uh, and then, you know, listen to teachers that you trust. Teachers that you know study the word of God. Uh, not Facebook memes or celebrity opinions. <laughs> you know what I mean? We don't want any meme theology. <coughs> and also don't build dogmatic theology around speculation. There's some things in the book of Revelation that we just don't know. And we have to be okay with just not knowing it. You know, and just being like, you know what? This could be what it is, but I don't know. You know what I'm saying? When the, I believe the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation, but there is a chance that I could be wrong. I'm not building my faith on when the rapture is going to be. That's just what I believe and how I, because honestly, that's the best for us. If, if the rapture happens before the tribulation, it's good for us. It's good for the church because the church doesn't have to experience wrath. So, but I'm not going to like ruin relationships with people over that. You know, I'm not going to sit around a coffee table, like I will, like with maybe, you know, a different pastor or something and we can thumb wrestle it out, you know, but like, anyway, but uh, another couple of things, biblical symbols, and I think in Revelation and Daniel and Zechariah and different prophetic books always have a literal interpretation. There's always a literal interpretation for it. Um, so, I mean, you look at some of these things, God is showing us something. Like, you, you get into the next chapter when it talks about the dragon and the beast and the woman and the child, and you're like, what the heck? There's a literal meaning behind that, and we'll explore it. Yeah, dude, it's crazy, man, you know? Uh, and I think full context is key to providing immediate interpretation. So, like I said before, don't open the Bible, randomly throw your finger down, read a verse, and believe it. Read the chapter, do some cross-reference. Okay, Jesus said such and such. Okay, why did he say that? You know, don't leave the faith because Jesus said that. Why did he say that? What was he saying? Who was his audience? What, you know, where, what people group was he talking to? Like he said to that woman, uh, you know, the, the crumbs, what, 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 I'm totally paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah. 
Like, that's massively offensive. Like, are you saying that the, you know, the dogs are more important than this woman? Read the context. Read the point he's trying to make. Understand what Jesus is saying. And then, you know, what I'm saying, but especially, especially in the book of Revelation or Daniel, these complex books, read the full context. And you might, like, it might take some time. And then the Old Testament will provide many similarities and guidance. I think especially reading Revelation or, or reading Luke, understand what, like, the, 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 what, what's being talked about. You know what I mean? Like, uh, some of the things that, that John is writing here have Old Testament references that the church is going to know who he initially read that to. And guess what? Those secrets in the Old Testament aren't hidden. They're actually back there for us to read. They didn't have these nice study Bibles back then. They had scrolls. We have nice study Bibles. You know, we can carry around and we can write on so we don't forget. Like, in English. Mm-hmm. In English. We don't have to read, like, whatever, you know. And then, just for fun, the skill of interpreting Scripture literally and figuratively is called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. That's what it's called. I took a, a college course, both Naomi and I did, hermeneutics. So, we're going to take a minute right here, and we're going to talk about the nation of Israel. And I think that the nation of Israel is so important to understand, especially in the coming chapters, but also with current events. You know, here's one thing that I always forget. God is not an American. Amen. He's not American. Jesus is king. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's like, God is not, he, Jesus is an American. Like, there's a lot of people that will say, you know, America is prophesied in scripture and I love America. I'm so, I'm so grateful. You know what I'm saying? But I cannot find America in scripture. A lot of people will eisegese it, you know, try to put it in there. But I don't think he, I, I think, I believe God's hands on it, but I don't see it prophesied in scripture. I don't think as important as we think we are. <laughs> just me. I'm just saying. You know. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the nation of Israel. Where are we at here? Okay. So the nation of Israel. Now, one thing we've got to remember. Now, let me ask you this. Why did God choose? Why is, why is Israel so important to God? It's the easiest. Way, way, way back. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. Well, that's the line he wanted to bring the Messiah in. He chose the nation of Israel to bring the Messiah in. That's why he was so protective of Israel. And that's why Satan hates Israel. And you look through scripture and you see so many times that Satan always tried to disrupt, right? He always tried to disrupt the family line. Tried to get David, you know, to, to sleep with Bathsheba to mess up the family line. I mean, he, he succeeded there. But, like, he, he tried to get, you know, David to count the people in a census to start a civil war and, and kill off. Like, he was always just trying to disrupt that family lineage. Satan hates Israel, you know. But the nation of Israel in Bible prophecy, we'll go through some of this here in a minute. But in Zechariah 2.8. Israel is the apple of God's eye. I'm not going to go to every single one of them, but you can read them on your own. Zechariah 2.12, Israel is described as holy, a holy land. And Ezekiel 5.5, Israel is set as the center of the nations. God loves Israel. And if you, you, you know, and I, the more, like, pay attention to what's happening in Israel. 
to kind of understand God's timeline. Obviously, we don't know what God's going to do. We don't know when he, we know what he's going to do. We don't know when he's going to do it. Pay attention to Israel. And we can see over the last hundred years, some things that God has been doing in Israel. And we'll go through those right now. In biblical prophecy, there are some prophecies that are fulfilled in the Old Testament. Number one is Jews will be scattered across the earth. And number two, they'll, they'll face persecution and fear of death. Okay, oops, sorry. <coughs> Deuteronomy 28, 64 and 65, I didn't wrote it up there, but it says this. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. There you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Now, the Assyrians conquered Israel in 722 BC, but we always know that the Israel, like they were, they were uh, sent to Egypt for enslavement for 400 years. They've always been kind of a displaced people, okay? So we see that in scripture. And then we also know in uh, their land would become desolate. In Deuteronomy 29, 22 through 25 says, And the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far land, will say, when they see the afflictions that the land and the sickness with which the Lord has made sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his wrath and anger, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of his great anger? Then the people will say, as always, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. Okay. And then we know in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem and took captives. We know they were captured in Babylon and Daniel times. It's just like, this prophecy just over again and again. But, 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 God will preserve the Jews by grace. He protected the family line of uh, Jesus. Read the, read, you know, read the lineage and we see God's protection and grace on them always. Isaiah 49, 15 through 16 says this, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. He's saying this to the Jews, but he's also saying it to us. I will not forget you. You know, how many of us have felt forgotten by God? Come on. He will not forget you. And no other nation has been so dispersed and yet has kept their identity and roots than the Jewish people. They have kept their roots even today. And then, of course, modern-day prophecies. World War I saw control of Palestinian land transfer from the Turks, who hated the Jews, to Britain, who favored the Jews. Isaiah 11, 10 through 12 says this, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, 
and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Okay, this is in World War I. And it happened a few different times, but we're seeing this same prophecy fulfilled over. I think prophecy, once it's prophesied and it's got the spirit of the Lord on it, there's eternal hold on it. You know, as we see throughout scripture. And then, of course, we see the nation of Israel was reestablished on May 14th, 1948. Isaiah 66, 7 through 8 says, Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. The nation of Israel was reestablished before the world stage in 1948. That is massive, massive prophecy. And the land, the actual land itself, was revived. Ezekiel 36, 35 says, And they will say, The land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhibited. Inhabited, sorry. In the past century, over 250 million trees were planted in that region of the world. The rainfall increased 450% in that same last century. Swamps that spread malaria and other diseases were drained into usable land, and the Sea of Galilee, water has now been channeled to desert regions, causing vegetation to grow in neighboring areas. And here's a really interesting one. The revival of the Hebrew language, okay? In the early 1900s, there was a man named Ben Yehuda. And he was the man that God used to bring revival to the Hebrew language. Now, many, he, he started two Palestinian papers uh, that were written in Hebrew. And he got a lot of pushback from the people because a lot of devout Jews just wanted the language to be used only for holy uh, liturgy. But, but there was a restoration of that language. He, he wrote two papers and distributed it to the area. And then the uh, Academy of Hebrew Language so people began to speak it again. They began to use it again. And I think fascinating. it's fascinating. There's a holiness on it. The Jews were right. But now that they're using it in everyday language, and not everybody does. There's probably still a hubbub about it. But Zephaniah 3.9 says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Okay, the Hebrew language still has value. It still has value today as we see, as we interpret scripture. The more people that know, know Hebrew, the more people can interpret the Old Testament, thus interpreting the New Testament. You know what I'm saying? So, and then there's the reoccupation of Jerusalem, uh, and that occurred during the Six-Day uh, six War in 1967. Uh, and then there is also the rebuilt military, um, okay, I'm going to go to this one. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding people, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. There's a real focus in this passage on Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem is a key city in that nation. Why? Because the temple's there. Why? Because that's where Jesus' ministry was there. Why? Because so many biblical landmarks are in the city of Jerusalem. And then on December 6, 2017, Jerusalem was recognized as the, is Israel's capital. Okay? A lot of people get mad because of the president who was in office that did that. But you take that away, there's something significant there about them saying, look, is Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Did, of course, cause an uprising. Uh, Hamas from Hamas and then sparked outrage, missile strikes. It was a big to-do. There were worldwide protests. And usually if there's worldwide protests, you know that there's something behind that. (laughs) If everybody's mad, you're like, hmm, you know, if everybody's quiet, you're like, wait a minute, (laughs) you know, so, but Satan hates Israel and Satan hates Jerusalem. He hates the city. He, He just, he just hates those people. Not because he tried to destroy the Messiah, couldn't do it. He tried to kill the Messiah. It didn't work. He rose from the dead. And now he's trying to kill the church that carries the spirit of God. So he is just anti-Israel. And now let's get into Revelation chapter 7. It'll get a little bit, uh, you know, it'll get a little bit deep, but I think we can, we can navigate through it in a couple minutes. What did I say? Chapter 7. Boom, 11. 7, 11, I was thinking Slurpee. Okay. And like I said before, according to most, most people, this is now the three and a half year mark. We've had two rounds of judgments that have now come. The earth is a disaster area. It's really bad for the people that have not chosen Jesus, who have not chosen the Lord. The church is gone. The Antichrist, as we'll see in in a couple chapters, will rise up, proclaim himself as God. That's when the mark of man comes in, and the people who reject that, they can't do anything in the earth without that recognition of him. And so we'll see a little bit of that in the coming chapters, okay? Um, the set, and, and the Antichrist broke the peace treaty with Israel, so now Israel is no longer protected. But, so let me just, we'll read this first couple chap, first uh, scriptures, then we'll, we'll, we'll discuss it a little bit. But uh, Revelations 11, and we'll, I'll just read the first paragraph. It says, Then I was giving a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nation, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, or three and a half years. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, or three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. So, we've gone from heaven, now we're down focused on the city of Jerusalem, and and and. He was, John was given, a still interacting with the vision, a measuring rod to measure out the temple. Okay? We know that this is, is literal um, because there is such specific numbers in here. When you see specific numbers, there's something literal that God wants us to be aware of. Okay? Uh, this chapter by far is best interpreted by using the exegesis method. In other words, read it for just what it is, and let's find the truth that's there, let's not dig too deep into it. You know, I think that the best way to approach Revelation is the simplest way. It's really, especially with all the symbolism, the simplest way, okay? And this this, uh, shows us that the temple has been protected and the people are there worshiping, again, it's been protected up until this point. 
because of that peace treaty in Israel. And the topics of this chapter, we'll talk a little bit about the temple, the two witnesses, and then the trumpet of God. Okay? Now, the second part is this. It says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he, they are doomed. He is doomed to be killed. Now, going back to the temple, when you measure something, Ezekiel me, did a lot of measuring, that puts ownership. In other words, he has the authority to measure this. God has given them the authority to measure it. In other words, this temple is still under the protection of God, regardless of what the Antichrist is doing. There's still a plan and purpose there. And we know that that is going to be where Jesus comes to begin to set up his kingdom during the millennial reign, when Satan is kicked down to the bottomless pit. Sucka! Okay? Now, uh, now there will... Going now to these two witnesses. So we know that that, that temple is of significant value. In, uh, that's why, like in, in 70 AD, you know, the, the Romans came and destroyed this temple and it's been rebuilt. Okay? But, because uh, Satan has read this portion of scripture. I'm assuming Satan can read or something, you know, because he knows what's going to happen. Because he's always getting beat. Like he knows what is coming. Uh, but anyway, so... Now, going to these two witnesses here, there's four views about who these two witnesses are. The first one, which I hold, is that they're just two unknown prophets. That, that these two people, most likely men, have been given the authority from God for a specific task on the earth there in Jerusalem. And what we read as we go further down, we know that they are very well known for prophesying and doing signs and wonders to bring glory to God. And we also know that they are clothed in sackcloth, which symbolizes repentance. And this will take place kind of as the second part of the tribulation begins. So, verse 4 says, these are the. That phrase right there says they have been known about for a while. These are specific people for a specific task, for a specific moment, I believe, to hinge that great tribulation period. Okay? And they are called two lampstands that stand before the Lord. And they're also uh, two olive trees. So they, there's some symbolism there, which we're going to get into in just a minute. But, like I said, they're out of order. They will announce to the world, hope to all, and preach repentance for the kingdom is at hand. So, we, like, we don't know how the world is going to know about them. I'm assuming some kind of media. Sorry, I got it. Like I said, they're all messed up. I'm assuming there's probably some kind of media <coughs> or news system or something where people know about these two witnesses that are doing these beautiful signs and wonders that are bringing glory to God. Okay? They have the... Uh, Actually, we'll get into it. But where this symbolism comes from and why he, I believe he used this terminology comes out of Zechariah chapter 4. And I'm going to go there real quick. Um, and it says this. In Zechariah chapter 4, uh, verse 8, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you 
For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line of the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the seven eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And the second time I said to him, What are these two branches of olive trees which are beside the golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And I believe that, that John used this kind of imagery or God showed it to him because they'll remember the prophet Zechariah from so many years before. This, you know, uh, was what? I want to say, I mean, it was a few hundred years before, but they're going to remember that prophecy. And who Zerubbabel was, Zerubbabel was the governor and Joshua was the high priest. And they had been charged by Haggai, now listen, to rebuild the temple. And it was destroyed around 589 B.C. Uh, It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, obviously. Then it was built again in 516 B.C. And then 70 years later, Nehemiah came and rebuilt the walls. Okay? So, there there was a rebuilding. So, we have a priest who had authority spiritually. And then we had a governor who had uh, authority governmentally or politically. So, these two witnesses you interpret it this way are going to have political influence for good for righteousness and spiritual influence for righteousness they're going to influence religion and they're going to influence politics okay how many of you know those are two hotbed things right now in the world and if it keeps going this way that's going to make a lot of sense now these two uh, witnesses will be highly influential they will have great power and authority they can shut up the sky like rain and that, uh, like Elijah, shut up the sky from rain, turn water to blood, strike the earth with plagues. And like I said before, a lot of people, and I'm one of them, believe that these are just two men that God anoints. A lot of people, some people believe, not a lot, that they're just symbolic. That these aren't really two witnesses, there's just the power that's released. Some believe Enoch and Elijah, because Enoch and Elijah were both taken to heaven, they didn't die. Uh, Elijah, yeah, sorry. And some believe uh, Moses, or Elijah Elijah, went up to heaven. Yeah. He went there. Yeah. That's right. Elijah, Elisha was his. Yeah. Anyway, and some people believe Moses and Elijah. I get him confused too. But here's the thing about Enoch and Elijah and Moses. For me, you can believe how you want. They're just men. They're really not like, I don't know. They're just men. They're not as. Like, we look at them like the greats, and I'm like, I've read the story of their lives. They're really not all that great, you know? (laughs) Some say Moses and Elijah because they showed up at the Mount of Transfiguration. I just believe two unknown prophets because then it keeps extra, like, rabbit trails trying to find something, you know? I'll just say, I believe that these are two men, and they don't even really matter. It's what God does with them that's so powerful, okay? Now... When their ministry is complete, and I'm going to read this. Actually, I'll read this next. They will have the power to shut the sky, verse 6, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood, strike the earth with every kind of plague, as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. 
and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some, pe- uh, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Law right there. Basically what it's saying, when their ministry is complete, the Antichrist will make war, conquer them and kill them, and leave their bodies in the streets of Jerusalem. Okay? People who follow the Antichrist will rejoice. A worldwide party and even a gift exchange will take place. Let's read uh, what this says next. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. It's like a demonic Christmas. Because those two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. In other words, people who are, not, are rejecting their repentance message are like, oh man, these guys are terrible. Oh, they're the worst. Now they're dead, let's party. But after three and a half days, a breath of God will, cu- will enter them. And they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Imagine celebrating because these two men who have been doing signs and wonders, preaching repentance, preaching hope, preaching light, preaching truth, are now saying, now you're celebrating their death and now they're alive again to torment you even more. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was such a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. It's a big earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. The second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe was come. The Antichrist thinks he won by killing these two prophets. Then, ha ha ha, God comes, breathes life, mocks the Antichrist in front of the world, and then raises up to heaven. And as soon as they're gone, like, you know how Jesus kind of ascended in the cloud? Same kind of a deal. Um, and then, tenth of the city fell. In other words, destruction. 7,000 people then die, and then a massive revival hits. And everyone else turns to God. It's a beautiful thing. And that's the second woe. Now, this is where things change. So, that was an event that happened on earth. Okay? So we had the two witnesses. The Antichrist tried to defeat him. Didn't work. People came to God still. I don't know how people are, like, people are stupid. It's like, it's right in front of you. Like, God is giving people so much mercy. He's like... I'm telling you how much time this is going to be. I'm, I already told, like, there's going to be a generation in the tribulation that will have already had this available to them. And there's people that are going to be like, oh my gosh, I remember this. I was taught this. Now I know what's going on. And then they tell their friends and they'll either repent or reject it. it like, this is his plan laid out in front of us for us all to know, you know, for the most part. Some mysteries. Okay, now we'll get into this and then we'll be done. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Now listen, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. 
Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail in heaven. So this is what we've got here. Now the elders, they prophesy a few things. Number one, they prophesy God's eternal sovereignty. Okay, They say, what, what is it they say? We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, who is. Whenever the elders speak, whoever these, these elders are, they always start by recognizing who God is. They always start by praising his name. They don't go into, you know, they don't go into that other stuff. They just say, okay, this is who God is. God's eternal sovereignty. And then they proclaim Christ's reign with power. Now, many believe, and I believe this, that this proclaims Christ's second coming. Now, we, we, we also got to remember that this is an eternal, what's happening in heaven, heaven doesn't have a watch like ours. Like, they're not synced time-wise. We know that on earth, three and a half years, Christ comes back, he sets up his kingdom. But this uh, passage is saying, you have begun your great, you have taken your great power and begun to reign. In other words, he's coming back to rule and reign with authority. Okay, but the nation ra- the nations raged, and your wrath came, and time for the dead to be judged. In other words, God's wrath. Uh, they prophesy of God's wrath, saying this is part of it, and we'll see why in just a minute. And then they prophesy of the eternal reward and relief coming to those who follow God. And then Jesus will completely will defeat completely those who were set loose to destroy the earth and those in it. A couple passages ago, we just saw, you know, these, these demons that have been held. We read about them in 1 Peter, and we read about them in Jude that have been waiting for this time to be released on the earth, to just release demonic chaos on the earth. And, it, and then, basically, they're prophesying the end of the Antichrist, the end of the devil, the tribulation, and the end of sin. Once it's been proclaimed in heaven, it is. So at this point, when they make that, the end is near. Whether it happens, like, I don't know the timeline, I can't. Like, they're in eternity, we're bound by clock. But, and it says this, And for rewarding your servants, the prophets, the saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. They're prophesying and saying there's a great reward coming for those who stood close to God. And then those who came out to destroy the earth, we know in a couple chapters, Satan will be locked away for a thousand years. Okay, there's, like, there's a punishment coming before the ultimate punishment, according to the biblical timeline. Why did God set it up that way? Beats me. I'm not God. I'd have just done away with Satan to begin with. But maybe, I don't know. Who knows? But in conclusion, what we are seeing, like the wrath of God is kind of the mercy of God. And let me explain. God's wrath is purging the earth of sin. And he's getting it ready for the return of Christ with his church. To his second coming to rule and reign. He is bringing punishment on those while still giving an opportunity for people who reject him to get right with God. Once the sin's punishment has been fulfilled... That creates the earth where sin has been driven back and sin has brought the punishment of death on people. So, 
He is purifying the earth. And we got to remember this too. Satan hates the earth. He hates it because he's reminded of God's creation. Everywhere you look, the trees, the grass, everything is God's creation. Satan hates God's creation. He hates you and he hates me. Anything that has to do with God, he hates and wants to destroy. And I, I heard a preacher once say, and I think it's super true. I think when we get to heaven, this is what he said, we're going to really look and see the effect that sin had on the earth. Like imagine being here when the earth was created. Everything was so much more beautiful and magnified. And then man sinned and ruined everything. And it declines and declines and declines and declines more and more. So uh, that's basically what the hope is. You know, and we see all this. Now, for you and I, you know, we will rule and reign with Jesus during the millennium. It's very clear in scripture that we are going to rule and reign on the earth with Christ. And we're going, to see, see, we're going to see the results of how his wrath is mercy to us because it has purified the earth for us to come down and rule and reign with him. Okay? Now, <clears throat> there's, a, like, there's a lot here. This is the kind of thing that you keep studying and you keep realizing. But you can see how it just ties so much scripture together. So, anyway, but that's, that's the thought for this. Like, if we look at our lives, we want God to, we want the pain of purification. Like, if we, if we were really honest with ourselves, like we can hide from it, you know, for a while. But after a while, we got to look at God and say, God, I want you to purify this so that you can come and rule and reign in me so that I can go and rule and reign with you. You know what I'm saying? Like, when, when the time comes for this rule and reigning on earth, I want to I be purified. You know what I'm saying? I want to I wanna be a good ruler and reigner, a co-heir with Christ. And we get to experience a bit of that now, but its fullness comes when this book and all its promises and hope is fulfilled. And as we go through this book, we see so much hope. We see so much mercy. He's revealing his plan to humanity. He's like... The, the, the John Cusack movies are not really what's going to happen. He is laying out what's going to happen. It just takes a little bit of study and a little bit of being okay that you don't know every detail. You know, man, we want to know every detail. You, you know what I'm saying? But for you and me who trust in Jesus, it's nothing but hope and wonder and awe. And the more we know, the more we can... Because I believe that as... The, this is just what I believe, but I believe as this thing gets to wind down, and we get closer and closer to the rapture of the church, people are going to start asking questions about the end of the world. It's going to become a massive worldwide topic. You know, people, what's going to happen? And if the church knows, at least in part, we can prophesy in part and at least say this is what we do know.